So go ahead and open your Bibles to Luke chapter 4. Luke chapter 4 and verse 31 is where we'll be starting today. And once you are there, if you could please stand and join me for the reading of God's Word. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 31. And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word possessed authority. And in the synagogue, there was a man who had a spirit of an unclean demon. And he cried out with a voice, Ha! What have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down in their midst, he came out of him, having done him no harm. And they were all amazed and said to one another, What is this word? For with authority and power he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And the reports about him went out into every place in the surrounding region. This is the word of the Lord. You guys can be seated. The title of the sermon for this evening is The Holy One of God. The Holy One of God. As we uh, continue our study in the book of Luke, I just want to remind you by way of redundancy and also uh, way of introduction that Luke writes his gospel for a purpose. And in Luke chapter 1, verse 4, we see the purpose of him writing his gospel is for Theophilus to have certainty concerning the things that he has been taught. So we know that everything else in the Gospel of Luke is moving towards or telling us about the things that Theophilus was initially taught so he can have confirmation and certainty about these things. And as we've been moving through this Gospel so far, we've seen the prophecy proclaiming Jesus' birth, the prophecy talking about John the Baptist and his birth. We saw John the Baptist and his ministry. And then we see Jesus and his inauguration to his ministry with his baptism and then his temptation. And then now we come to a point where Jesus is regularly preaching on the Sabbath day. And in this particular occurrence, just like last week's when we talked about him in the Sabbath preaching the word of God, we see here he does a very similar kind of pattern. He preaches, something happens, and then there's kind of a resulting response from the people that he's with. And you kind of see this pattern mirrored in much of Luke's accounts of Jesus's ministry. And so I have really three things that we're going to see in the passage tonight as we move through the text. The first one that I want you to see is that we see authority observed. The second thing we're going to see is we're going to see that authority challenged. And then the third thing you are going to see is that authority established. You're going to see the authority being observed and then challenged, and then ultimately you're going to see it established in the close of this text. So pick up with me in verse 31 as we're going to see the authority being observed by the people. Verse 31 says, And he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he was teaching them on the Sabbath day. Now, that's not new information for us, right? We've already learned that Jesus regularly had a pattern of going up to the Sabbath, going up to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, worshiping with the people of God. He was kind of like a traveling preacher in many regards, in which case he would go and be the teaching rabbi of various synagogues. And in this particular time, he goes down to Capernaum, which is where he grows up, 
And as a note, it says Capernaum, a city of Galilee. That's likely because Theophilus, the person who's receiving this, isn't familiar with Jewish landmarks. And so Theophilus gets this and Luke is adding a detail in so he can know roughly what region that is a part of. So Jesus goes to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and he's teaching them once again on the Sabbath. Now in this case, we're not told what the text is and we're not told what his exposition or interpretation of the text is. That's all secondary information in this account. Because the focus here is not so much on the content of the teaching as it was previously, but it is on the, the nature of the teaching. The nature of the teaching in this case is the authority of that word. We see here he's teaching them on the Sabbath and they're all astonished and they're amazed at his teaching. This is similar to the kind of response that they got previously when he is ex expositing Isaiah 61. And we see then the reason that they are astonished at his teaching is because his word possessed authority. And that's an interesting kind of phrasing that you see in the Gospel of Luke. Now, some of you, depending on what translation you might have in front of you, it says his word possessed authority or his word possessed power. It's another way to translate that word. It's a Greek word, which is exousia, and it refers to power or authority and really both. To just refer to authority is kind of a misnomer. To just refer to power is kind of a misnomer. It really has all of those ideas encompassed together. And it says that the very words of God are what contain this authority. Now, if you want to see another way in which Luke uses this term in his gospel, flip with me over to Luke chapter 7. And you get a similar kind of uh, linking between words and power in Luke chapter 7. And we're just going to pick it up in verse 7. And what's happening here is Jesus is interacting with a centurion, a man who is a ruler over an army, over a certain squad of people. And the centurion is asking Jesus to come and heal his daughter. And he says, therefore, in verse 7, it says, Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. This is the centurion speaking. But say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. And then he goes on to explain what he means by that. He says, and I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. And when Jesus heard these things, he marvels at him, turning to the crown, turning to the crowd, and he says, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. So here the soldier is accurately describing the kind of authority that Jesus possesses. And the, the soldier links the word with that ability to produce power, that ability to have authority. That's that same word there, exousia, and that same word for word, which is logos, which is very famously in the introductory chapters of John's gospel. And here in Luke chapter four, we see that the word possessing authority is a linked idea. And so then we've, and you know we've spent some time on this previously, we, we have a very high view of God's word in this church. And we spent quite a lot of time uh, trying to get you to understand the, the importance of not only believing in God's word, but believing in all parts of God's word. It's not just that some of his words contain authority and not others. It's not just that parts of his word possess authority and not others. All of his word possesses authority. And if we are going to say things like Jesus has authority or he commands authority over us, we cannot then dismiss and say that his word, though, though is in error, his word is non-authoritative. Because if he has authority, if he commands power, the question is, how does he tell us what he wants us to do? Just like the centurion who commands authority, he says that it's through the words that he decrees is how his people obey him and follow him. 
His authority is linked to the words that he speaks and people following along with the kinds of things that he says. And Jesus, too, in his preaching, his word possesses authority. And that is all the words that Jesus speaks. In fact, if you were to take a survey in the book of Acts, you can actually trace a lot of the movement in the book of Acts by following just the times that Luke refers to the word going forth. He says in Acts chapter 6 that the word of God went forth into all the region. And then in all of these various movements in the book of Acts, you can see that the word goes forward, the gospel is preached, the word moves, and this is the authority by which the early church is established. Yes, there's miracles and yes, there's healings, but the focus is on the teaching or on the words of the apostles. Many of those words and speeches having to do with the very text of the Jewish Bible, the Jewish Old Testament, and they're using those words of authority to establish their validity in the early world. They're saying that Jesus is simply the completion of all of these Old Testament prophecies that you have been reading about. In 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 20, Paul writes and says that the word of God does not merely consist in talk, but in power, but in authority, but in exousia. The word of God and the kingdom of God is not merely one of talk or theoretical ideas or theology. The kingdom of God is one that exists in power. And that's important for us to know because as people who are in a learned world, in a learned country, people who have college degrees and we value knowledge and understanding, we have to know that that is not all that the kingdom of God is about. It's not about talk. It's not about theology. It's not about ideas. It's about life-changing power that is conveyed through those ideas. A good way to say this is that all theology is practical. All theology is practical. And in fact, if you don't know why the theology is practical, it's not that you understand it too much, it's that you understand it too little. Theology always has practical implications. For example, if we say that his word possesses authority, but then we deny the inerrancy of that word, we have now subverted the authority of that word because we give ourselves permission to cut and paste and remove the parts we don't like and apply the parts we do or dismiss all of it out of hand. And that theological idea of the inerrancy of scripture has to do with the very practical way in which Christians go about and live their lives. But as you're gonna see in this text as we continue to move forward, there's more than one way to challenge the authority of Jesus' words. There's more than one way. And we're gonna see that the demon comes up with a particular way to challenge the authority of God. And so in verse 33, we're going to continue with this text. It says, And in the synagogue there was a man who had the spirit of an unclean demon. Now that's a lot of modifying statements, right? It has the spirit of an unclean demon. Now what you need to know is that that does not mean that this demon is particularly unclean or particularly evil. This is just a double statement that Luke is using to emphasize or underscore the nature of this evil spirit. In contrast with the fact that all we've seen so far from Jesus is that he's holy, he has the Holy Spirit, he possesses God's holy power, and as we're going to see in a moment, the demon even recognizes his holiness in contrast to its own uncleanness. So it's an unclean demon, and the unclean demon cries out with a loud voice. So this is in the middle of Jesus' sermon, the middle of Jesus' exposition of some text of scripture. The demon has had enough of what God has to say, and the demon cries out, and depending on your translation, it will say, ha, just like a phrase, or it will say, leave us alone. And the Greek that he uses here could refer to either one of those things. Either the demon is interrupting or interjecting in Jesus, scoffing at him, saying, ha, like, 
I don't believe what you have to say, and I'm going to challenge your authority. Or the demon is recognizing the kind of teaching that Jesus has and simply saying, leave us alone or get away from us. I recognize your authority, but I don't want your jurisdiction here. And he asks uh, then a follow-up question saying, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? So now he's directly addressing Jesus and he asks that question. And that question is rhetorical, right? That's like, why are you bothering us, Jesus of Nazareth? And I want you to ponder with me for a moment. Why does he refer to himself as us? Why does the demon refer to himself as us, a plural term? And if you think about that, there's a few ways to address it. One, the demon could be referring to himself and all of the forces of darkness that Jesus is now going to wage war on. The demon referring to us, what have you to do with us, or what have you to do with our unclean realm, our unclean kingdom, challenging Jesus's jurisdiction and his invasion of the earthly world, which has now happened for some 30 odd years. Or this us could be in reference to the demon and the man the demon is possessing. The demon and the man the demon is possessing. It could say, what have you to do with us? Meaning the demon is challenging Jesus's authority, not only here in the synagogue, but also over this individual person. So the demon challenges Jesus's authority, not in the face of the authority, but can that authority really extend into even this individual person? What have you to do with us? Or what does your authority have to do with me and my little corner of the world right here and this man that I am possessing? And the demon here says that not that Jesus' authority is invalid, but he's challenging whether that authority can extend to this individual person or that authority extends really to all people as scripture would teach us. And then he has a follow-up statement or a follow-up question. Not what have you to do with us, but now he says, have you come to destroy us? Again, that us could mean either one of those things we've just discussed. Have you come to destroy us? And if you're familiar with the teachings of the New Testament, the answer to that question is emphatically yes. Jesus has come to destroy this demon. 1 John 3, 8 puts it this way. It says that Jesus came into the world to destroy the works of the devil. The devil came into the world, he had works, and Jesus came into the world for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil. That's 1 John chapter 3, verse 8. Or we could go to the Old Testament, and we can see what it has to say, and what Isaiah prophesies about these things. And if you'll turn with me there to Isaiah chapter 11, you're going to see a prophecy that has to do with this very thing. Isaiah chapter 11. And we'll be starting in verse 1 of Isaiah chapter 11. This is Isaiah prophesying about the coming Messiah, and he describes the ministry in these words. There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from the roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see, or decide disputes by what his ears hear, but with righteousness he will judge the poor, and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. 
see there at the end of verse 4 in Isaiah's prophecy, he says that the breath of his lips is what he's going to use to kill the wicked. That is, again, linked to what we just discussed, that his word contains authority. His word possesses authority, and it is with the lips and his breath that he is able to kill the forces of darkness. So Jesus could emphatically answer this question, yes, he has come to destroy, but the demon knows that and is simply challenging the timing of Jesus's return. In other places in scripture, you can find demons saying, is it already the hour when Jesus comes to bother them in their, uh, in their world, in their kingdom of darkness? So the demon says, have you come to destroy us? And then he says this statement, I know who you are, the Holy One of God. That's an interesting statement, right? Because the demon correctly identifies the identity of Jesus. That's interesting because it takes a lot longer in the Gospel of Luke for the disciples to get to this point of understanding Jesus' identity. The people in the synagogue that Jesus just came from, the account that we just had, actually deny this statement of identity. They would reject Jesus, that Jesus was the Holy One of God. They would say that that's not actually his identity. That's actually, remember, why they wanted to throw him off that cliff. But here, the demon says that he is, in fact, the Holy One of God. Almost like he wants Jesus to be aware of the fact that he is aware of who he is. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The word there in Greek is the hagios, the Holy One. This is not, by the way, an exclusive reference to Jesus. This same phrase is used of Elisha in the Old Testament and Aaron in various places in the Psalms and in 2 Kings. So he refers to Jesus as the Holy One of God. What the, probably the best understanding of this reference is, is that he is the one upon whom the Spirit dwells at this moment in time. That Jesus, possessing the Holy Spirit, can now correctly be identified as the Holy One of God. Just as Elisha, when he possesses the Holy Spirit, is referred to as the Holy One of God in Psalm 106. Or as uh, in 2 Kings, we see that uh, Aaron is referred to as the Holy One of God as well. So that is someone who the Holy Spirit dwells upon. And so then the demon is correctly identifying not really Jesus, who he's talking to, but he's identifying the spirit that possesses or indwells Jesus. He's identifying his spirit, the unclean spirit, is now swearing off and seeing through the mortal plane or the physical realm and looking into the spirit of Jesus and seeing the power of the Holy Spirit. And he identifies him and he says, I know who you are. You are the spirit that possesses the people who we refer to as the Holy One of God, the Hagios. That's an interesting phrase because we were already told that this is who Jesus was going to be. In Luke chapter 1, verse 35, when the prophecy of Jesus' birth is foretold to Mary, she says that you will name him Jesus, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you, and the one, the child who will be born to you will be called Holy, the Son of God. That is Hagios, the Son of God. He is the Holy One. He's predicted to be holy, and here the demon is the first person in the Gospel of Luke to identify him as that Holy Son. And so you see that here. But this is not a profession of faith. And that brings us to a really startling reality, which is that this demon can be correct about even up to the point of identifying his his real identity. And he's still not at the point of faith. Which is quite scary because in the world that we live in, there's a great many number of churches that would deny this truth statement about who Jesus is. In fact, if you were to survey all of the apostate denominations in our country, 
you were to survey liberal theologians and people who are working in seminaries trying to teach people about scripture and all of the inner workings of how scripture contradicts itself, those people would deny Jesus' divinity. They would deny that he is the Holy One of God. They would deny that there is such a thing as the Holy One of God. They would deny that demons exist and that angels exist and that the spiritual world is a real thing. And in fact, here, the demon, who they would deny exists, correctly identifies Jesus, also something that they would deny. But yet, it is an insufficient claim. Identifying Jesus correctly is not a sufficient statement in order to be saved. And we know that because not only does this demon identify Jesus, but we see all throughout the synoptics that several other demons correctly identify Jesus. In fact, when Peter is asked to leave Jesus in John chapter 6, Jesus says, you know, all these other disciples have left. Why don't you guys leave too? And Peter, speaking on behalf of the other 12 apostles who decide to say, who decide to stay behind, they say, to whom else will we go? For we know that your words contain life and you are the Holy One of God. But you remember who else is in that group of 12 that stays confessing that same truth is Judas, who's in that same group and who Peter is speaking on behalf of. And he stays and he identifies Jesus as the Holy One of God and yet will later go to betray him. And so we know that this is not a sufficient statement. In fact, in James chapter 2, verse 19, James says it this way, you believe that he is God, you do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You believe he is God, you do well. Even the demons believe. And what James is arguing in that whole passage is that faith cannot save you. And what he means by that is that if you say and you profess faith and you don't follow that up with an actual fruit, with an actual work that verifies your faith, you're not saved. You confess that Jesus is Lord, you do well. The demons do so as well, but the demons are not obedient to Jesus. They're not his disciples. Jesus says, if you are my disciples, you will obey my commandments. And so the saints are to be those who not only profess Jesus as Lord, but also obey him as Lord. And it is not that that obedience therefore earns their salvation, but that obedience proves the very validity of that salvation that was always there. It's the difference between what we would call a meritorious work of salvation and a necessary work. Luther would say that you can have faith alone that saves you, but faith that saves you will never be alone. Faith that saves you will never be alone. It will always be con uh, companioned by or accompanied with works because the works are the productive fruit that bear to the reality of the tree, right? All trees bear fruit that corresponds with what they are. So if you're a good tree, you bear good fruit. That's how they would say it. And the demon here is doing what all demons must do, is identifying Jesus as who he is. The way that Paul would write it in Philippians chapter 2, verse 10, is that every knee will bow on heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. And that doesn't imply that they do so willingly, but they do so because they have no other choice, because this is objective reality. Jesus is Lord, whether the demons want him to be or not, and they know that, and they must confess him as Lord or identify him as the Holy One of God, and yet that is an insufficient condition for salvation. And Jesus recognizes that as such. But yet the demon is forced to obey him as Lord. And you'll see that in verse 35, Jesus rebuked him, or Jesus spoke down to him, or he rebuttaled him, 
and he says, be silent and come out of him. Now Jesus is speaking to the demon and he's going to tell this demon exactly where his authority extends to and where his authority goes. Remember, the demon has now challenged Jesus' authority. And Jesus says, be silent or stop interrupting me and come out of him. He's commanding the demon to leave, and what, is that, what that's doing is he's showing that his word and the power of his word extends not only to this synagogue, but even to that man who the demon has now claimed authority over. And the, the demon says, what have you to do with us? Or my authority goes here, your line is over there, let's keep our distance. And Jesus says, get out of him. And when the demon had thrown him down, the man gets thrown down in their midst, he comes out, and the demon, notice at the end of verse 35, having done him no harm. So when Jesus says the word, be silent and come out of him, he restrains the demon in such a way where the demon cannot hurt the man anymore. The demon can no longer speak or uh, object to Jesus and what he's doing. And he obeys what Jesus does, or he obeys what Jesus says. And now Jesus is proving that his word carries power. Or his word carries authority because he says something and the demon must obey what he says. In the same way that the soldier, the centurion says, I am a man set under authority because when I say something, my servant goes and he does it. And yes, even the unclean spirits and demons are servants of God. Even the unclean spirits serve ultimately the Lord. We're told that in Ephesians that Satan is the prince of the power of the air, but we're also told in other places in scripture that all authority comes from God. So all authority that Satan possesses and even our worldly authorities, government officials possess, it's all borrowed authority. It all stems from God. And so when the demon challenges Jesus' authority, he's going up against a person who over, oversees him in authority. And so when Jesus has something, the demon is down on the chain of command and he must obey because such is the very nature of what it means to be a demon. To be set in God's world means you obey God's words. And so when Jesus tells the demon to be silent, the demon must be silent. And when he says, come out, the demon must come out. It's no longer a choice for the demon. The demon, in such a sense, has free will only to where it extends and interrupts with God's free will. And therefore, the demon is limited or constrained by the commands of God. Jesus says, be silent and come out. In the same way, and when Lazarus is in the tomb, Jesus says, Lazarus, arise, come out. And Lazarus is no longer given a choice. The Lord of all creation has spoken, and he speaks with power. And when he speaks, so it happens, so it occurs. Be silent and come out of him. Now the question is, why does Jesus command the demon to be silent? There's much speculation, right? The demon has now identified him as the Holy One of God, so he could be trying to get him to be silent about that part of the testimony. But in reality, the way this is structured is, demon is uh, Jesus is saying, be silent, to all of the preceding statements of the demon. Meaning he's telling him to be quiet about the fact that the demon has challenged his authority. He's telling him to be quiet about the fact that the demon is questioning whether it is now the time for their kingdom to be destroyed. He's telling him to be quiet about all that and also about the testimony of Jesus being the Holy One of God. Now the question is why would Jesus silence the testimony of the demon? And it's not only here in Luke, this happens throughout Luke's gospel and in all the other synoptics. And we must address this. Why does Jesus tell the demon to be silent? Especially though, the, since the demon so far has got the best profession of faith in the Gospel of Luke up to this point in Jesus' earthly ministry. So why? Why silence him? Well, one of the ways you could put it is that Jesus' ministry, his work, 
does not need a corroborating testimony with a demon. His work is a sufficient testimony. His preaching is a, is a sufficient testimony about who he is. So he doesn't need the evidence of the demon. And that's good for us to know because earlier in the text, in the previous section, he doesn't get corroborating evidence with any spirits. And he still demands the kind of response that he demands here at Capernaum and in all of his other ministry. His preaching is sufficient. He comes teaching the word of God. His miracles and healing are sufficient to prove who he is. And he doesn't need any other witnesses or any other testimonies, testaments to who he is. So he can command the demon to be silent because the evidence is already sufficient for people to know about him and about who he is. So the demon comes out. He's not able to cause this man harm. And he is forced to obey. Another note on this, and this is just a footnote. Jesus, in doing this exorcism, separates himself from all of the other Old Testament prophets. By and large, all of the other miracles that Jesus does in the rest of the Gospels are done by Old Testament prophets. They make lame people walk. They bring dead people to life. All the other Old Testament prophets do miracles like that. But there's no other Old Testament prophet that does a, an exorcism. There's no other Old Testament prophet that directly calls out a demon and tells it to obey. And Jesus does this with very little effort. And he's not doing an exorcism in the sense that he's doing a series of spells or incantations or routines. He simply speaks and it happens. And that's wise for us to understand today because all other exorcisms that we see in all of the New Testament, even in the book of Acts done by the apostles, follow the same kind of pattern. There's no kind of uh, routine that you need to follow. There's no kind of incantation that you need to say. It is with authority that it's spoken. And if the word contains authority, you don't have to repeat it a bunch of times. It's said, it has authority, and so it happens. And so that's how we see these exorcisms modeled in all of the New Testament. And that's not supposed to make us fearful of the demonic world. Okay? There's such a thing as a healthy and unhealthy obsession with these kinds of things. But suffice it to say that the spirit who dwells in you is greater than he who dwells in the world. So if you're a believer, these are things that you do not have to be afraid of. Because Jesus and the Holy Spirit are stronger than the forces of darkness. And it's not close, right? This demon has no ability to combat. It's not like a back and forth battle between Jesus and the demon. He says it, demon obeys, right? This is a slaughter. And as he said, he came to destroy the works of the darkness. And he came to kill them with his words. And that's what Jesus does. And so we've seen so far the authority of Jesus observed by the people, right? They say his word possesses authority. And then secondly, we've seen the authority of Jesus challenged here by the demon, and subsequently the demon is exercised. And now finally, we're going to see the authority of Jesus established here in the text. And so I'm going to pick it up here in verse 36. And they were all amazed and said to one another, what is this word? For with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. That's an interesting reflection, right, from the people who are sitting in the synagogue. All, right, all of this takes place in the synagogue. This man who was demon-possessed, the demon is exercised from him. And then everyone's sitting around amazed, right? They were at first astonished at his teaching. Now they're amazed at his healing work. And they ask a series of questions. What is this word? And the, the reason they ask that question is, like, what, what kind of authority does this word possess? Because with authority and power, he commands the unclean spirits, and they come out. And this is not the first or the last time this kind of question gets asked about Jesus. 
what is this word? What are we to do with this man? What are we to do with this Jesus of Nazareth? The way they ask it previously is, isn't this Joseph's son? Isn't this Mary's son? Don't we know his brothers and his sisters? Later in Luke's gospel, in Luke chapter 20, and in all of the synoptics, we see the authority of Jesus finally challenged in the synagogue in Jerusalem. And that is the real big showdown between him and the scribes and the Pharisees. But it doesn't start there. It's a consistent kind of rejection of what he does. What is this word is the question. And that's a similar mirror, by the way, in which Luke is setting up this passage between verse 32 here and here in verse 36. We see in verse 32, his word possesses authority. And then here they ask the question, what is this word for with authority and power he commands the unclean spirit? So they're able to recognize objectively what's happening. The question is, can they take the final step in that jump? Can they make the final leap into submission to that kind of authority? The demon is forced to obey. Everyone is forced to obey because he's God. The question is, do they do so willingly? And that's really the thing that separates believers from unbelievers. What is this word? If I may offer you an alternative to this kind of understanding of the text, I would like to turn you to Psalm 119. And we're going to take a look at what it looks like to actually obey Jesus' words willingly rather than being forced to. So turn with me to Psalm 119. And I would just want you to, uh, as a believer, reflect on the words that the psalmist here says and ask yourself the kind of question that I think is fitting for all of us to ask ourselves, which is, does this describe my condition or my heart posture towards the words of God? Remember, Psalm 119 is a long reflection on the law of God. His words, his Old Testament statutes and rules, I'm just going to read a selection of verses from Psalm 119. We're not going to go past uh, the first 35 verses, so I'm just going to pull some verses from there. But Psalm 119, I'm going to pick it up in verse 5. Verse 5 says it this way, Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. Does that describe how you respond to the Word of God? Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. The longing of the psalmist is to be consistent in keeping God's words. Verse 6, Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. All of them. Not some of them, not the ones I like, excluding the ones I don't like. All of your commandments are worth fixing my eyes on. And that's what's going to prevent me from being put to shame. Verse 7. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn about your righteous rules. Or your righteous decrees is another way to say that. I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn of your righteous rules. How does your heart respond to the rules and the statutes and the commandments of God? Does that lead you to praise and worship and adoration of the king? Or does that stir up a kind of rebellion and anger in your heart about the declared rules? If you're a part of the demonic realm and part of that kingdom, you have a certain answer to that kind of question. It's rebellion, but obedience. A Christian has a different response. It's glory and praise and rejoicing and obedience. Obedience is commanded by everybody. Verse 9, Psalm 119. How can a young man keep his way pure? It's a good question for many of us. By guarding it according to your word. The word of God is not an optional thing. It is something that we need for the very guarding of our souls and the keeping of our lives. Verse 10. With my whole heart I seek you. 
Let me not wander from your commandments. Not only does he read God's word, but he seeks God's word and he desires to stay in God's word. Verse 11, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. The direct correlation being, he knows the more of God's word he has in his heart, the less his desire for sin will be. So he wants to store up all of God's word in his heart so that he might not sin against God. Verse 14, in the way of your testimonies, I delight as much as in all riches. In the way of your testimonies, that is, in the way of your laws, in the way of your words, in the way of your statutes, I delight. He takes delight in the law of God, in his words. So much delight, in fact, that he would rather have them than riches. As much as you get a paycheck and you get happy when that paycheck hits your bank account, how much more so should you be excited to open up your Bible and read about God's riches to keep you alive and holding steadfast? How much more should you value God's kingdom over stuff and houses and apartments and jobs and promotions and cars and all of the things that this world has to offer that as soon as we get them and purchase them and have them for a week, we are no longer pleased with them. And yet the word of God speaks with such authority that we can revisit the same text for a thousand years for our entire lifetime and yet never have plumbed the full depths of the joy of that scripture. In the ways of your testimony, I delight. Verse 16, I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will not forget your word. How many things do you care about to remember and yet how quick we are to forget God's word? And this psalmist says he delights so much that he doesn't even want to forget the words that he reads. And yet sometimes when I open my Bible and read it and I close it, I've just soon as I close it, I've forgotten what I read. And that speaks to maybe the condition of your and my hearts. Verse 17, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Why should God bless the psalmist who's writing Psalm 119? So that he can keep God's word longer and better. That's what he's asking for. Deal bountifully with me that I may live and that I may keep your word. Yet many of us don't pray to keep God's word longer or better. We pray for career advancement or success or health for the sake of health or joy for the sake of joy. How about health for the sake of being able to live longer to proclaim God's word to more people and more profoundly? Verse 18, open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. Your law. The Ten Commandments, Leviticus, Numbers, the books that most of us have a really hard time making it through in our Bible reading plans. And he says that's the thing that he delights in, and he wants his eyes to be open that he can behold what is there. He knows it's there, and he knows that when he doesn't see it, the condition is not the text, the condition is his heart and his blindness. So he wants his eyes to be opened to behold the wondrous things that are there. Verse 20, my soul is consumed with longing for your rules at all times. How many of us would be willing to say that our soul is consumed with longing for the rules of God? We love the blessings and the promises and the grace of God, certainly, but what about the rules of God which help us to navigate the life that he has put before us? Verse 24, your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. The psalmist here takes counsel and advice from the pages of scripture. Meaning as many counselors as this world has to offer, they can be good, they can be bad, 
If they're Christians and mature Christians, certainly we should heed their advice. But ultimately, the counselor of any Christian is the word of God. That is the ultimate counselor for any believer. Your testimonies are my delight. They are my counselors. And then verse 35 is the last one I want to look at. Lead me in the path of your commandments. Why? For I delight in it. The pleasure of the believer, the pleasure of the Christian, the heart of the one who is converted to faith in Christ is a joy and a delight and a pleasing sensation when we read God's word and we reflect on it. And that's not all the time. That's not every day. We are a wicked and depraved people bent towards sin. And yet, the general trajectory of our lives as believers is to more and more not obey, but more and more love to obey God's word. You see, if you're just trying to be more obedient than you were previously, just know that the demons have beaten you for all eternity. They are more obedient than you will ever be. The question is, do you enjoy your obedience? The demons were cast out of heaven and they must go. And they are cast out of people and they must go. And when they're thrown into hell in the pit of destruction forever, they must do so. They have no choices with regards to what God declares them to do. And when unclean demons are sent to torment people in scripture, they must do so. They have no choices. And yet, many of us strive for more obedience and not more delight in God's word. Certainly, his word commands our obedience. But more than that and higher than that is our delight in his obedience. Luke chapter 3, verse 16. John talking about Jesus, calls him the mightier one that is coming. And Jesus being mightier is worth more recognition, worth more authority, with more power than any of the previous teachers who have come. And I might say that he is the mightiest one who has ever come. That is better than all of the preachers that we could ever listen to, any of the teachers that come after him and preceded him beforehand. His words are such that we should hang on to them and drip on every page of scripture and meditate over it and chew on it and love it. It's good to read commentaries. It's good to listen to good preaching, but more than all of those things, you need to be in God's word and saturated in it. Because commentaries can make mistakes. Preachers can say dumb things. Even good Christian books, of which there are a great many number being published today and a great many that have already been written, they are profitable for your soul, but they don't come close to the kind of profit you can get from saturating yourself in God's word. Because he's the mightier one, his words are the mightiest words that we will ever have access to. And these are the words that he has given us today. Those are his words. As I kind of draw this to a close, I want to point us to two parables that Jesus talks about with regards to how his authority extends into the demonic world. And both of them, mercifully, come out of Matthew chapter 12, so not a lot of flipping. Matthew chapter 12, and I want to look at verse 28 for the first one. And then I want to contrast that with Matthew chapter 12, verse 43. So this is Jesus being challenged. His authority is being challenged by the Pharisees and the scribes. And he's ruling and he's healing. And in verse 24 of this text, they say, the reason he does this is because he does it by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. That is how he can cast out the demons. So after much reflection and much thought, the Pharisees and scribes have come together and said, we know how he's doing it. He's Satan. He's possessed by the prince of demons. That's how he's doing all that he's doing. And Jesus says, 
verse 29. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? And then indeed he may plunder his house. Jesus, reflecting on what the Pharisees say, says that he's a strong man. And although Satan has a house and Satan possesses authority over that house, Jesus is stronger than Satan. He comes into Satan's house, he binds Satan up, and then he plunders all of Satan's goods. Meaning, he's stronger. When he comes down to earth, he's stronger than Satan. This is his house. He binds Satan up, and then he commands all of Satan's demons to do whatever he wants to do. He says, if you want to know how I do this thing, I do it because I've bound Satan and I command his forces. The demons have to listen to me. He just said it is by the Spirit of God that he casts out demons, and he uses this picture to help us understand by what authority he's able to do these things. I want to contrast that with a different kind of way you can get rid of a demon. As Jesus tells us in Matthew 12, verse 43, and this is more of a warning than how you get rid of one. Verse 43 says this, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest, but it finds none. And then it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. And then it goes in and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they enter and they dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first state. For so it will be with this evil generation. Now, if you have a hard time understanding what that parable is talking about, it's actually not too complicated. The demon leaves. The oppressing spirit leaves, the tempting spirit leaves, and then it goes for a time, and when it comes back, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. This describes a house that is empty of power, meaning it's not converted, it doesn't have the Holy Spirit, but it is swept and it's put in order, meaning this is someone who has empty, dead religious works that has swept their house in order, but there's no power of a possessing spirit, the Holy Spirit, there. But he finds the house empty, swept, and put in order, and he says, ah, what a habitation this is for a religious person with dead religious works, and then he possesses him and causes this person to stumble, and it says that even seven more spirits, more evil in itself, come in, and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first state. Now, he's contrasting two ways in which demons leave or are forced to leave. The first way, in Matthew 12, verse 29, is Jesus, the strong man, casting out spirits by his power. And the second way is a religious person trying to get their act together to get rid of the demons. And they think that the more empty, the more clean, the more put together the house is, the better it is at resisting temptation. And Jesus says there's only really one way to get a demon gone and keep him gone. There's only one way to get rid of sin and keep it gone forever, and that is to have a different spirit possessing your vessel. You can go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. That's the only way to battle the darkness. It's not enough to work your way into the kingdom of light. In fact, that is impossible. The Holy Spirit needs to indwell a person in order for them to be in the kingdom of light. And so if you want sin gone, Jesus is saying the surefire way to do such a thing is not to be the person who sweeps their empty house together and puts it in order. It's to be the person who is indwelt with the Holy Spirit, who has a spirit that indwells them, possesses their vessel, and keeps them. Because then when that demon comes back and it wants to invade this person, there's already someone living there, and that spirit is more powerful than they are. So they can never come back. They can never reclaim the affections of this person. 
And so what he's warning the people of, he calls them, by the way, this wicked generation, he's warning them who are of very great danger of buying into religious works which may appear to work for a time, maybe even years and decades, and yet still leave them in a worse condition than when they started off with. And what he's talking about is religious people who have their act together for some time and yet are prone to fall. In fact, they're just as able to fall as, all, as they always were. All it takes is a little push from the evil side of the world. And he's saying that it's not enough to have religious works. And then what is enough? What is enough is to be possessed by the Holy Spirit, to have his spirit indwell you in such a way in which you love God's law. It's one thing to obey God's law. In fact, there's a great many number of teachers in Jesus' time who die in their sins forever, keeping God's law better than you have in your entire life. And there's a great number of teachers all throughout the Old and the New Testament who are self-deceived into thinking they'll be saved the better they keep God's law. And there's a great number of us who are convinced that if we know our own church's catechism better than someone else, we will be greatly saved as a result of that knowledge. And yet, Jesus says that it is his word that possesses authority. And his word goes forth, and his word is the only thing that holds power over the forces of darkness. Our works don't hold power at that level. His word does, though. And his word goes forth, and his word goes forth in such a way which he calls dead people to repent and believe on him, so it happens. And his spirit goes forth to remove their heart of stone and give them a heart of flesh. And he calls all people to repent and to believe. That's kind of the general consensus of his teaching all the time. That's why his teaching is such a focus in his ministry. It's not because he's just teaching them about the Old Testament. He's teaching them about the Old Testament and how he is the answer to all of these things. And that's why preaching is such a miracle. Preaching is when you are, you are hearing the words of God, you're hearing the scripture expounded, and the spirit is having a conversation with your heart and your soul and speaking to you in such a way in which you cannot deny the power of what you are hearing. And it's moving and it prompts your soul and it convicts you of sin and it encourages you and it strengthens you. And if you're weary and you're a Christian, it comforts you. And it does so not because the preacher is particularly good. In fact, the, the worse communicator they are, typically the better the Spirit is able to work because you know what's helping you to understand these words. There's no deception there. Paul says that he doesn't want to know anything among the Christians except Jesus Christ and him crucified. He doesn't come with lofty speech or higher reasoning. He comes with the cross. And so do we also come to you with the cross. And I just want to close by reminding you of that truth, that your sin is crucified at the cross. If you're a believer and you've trusted in Christ for salvation, your sin is at the cross. Your works, your dead religious works will never save you. Your works of obedience as a result of the cross, that's great. Run at those works. Be the best Christian that you can be in this lifetime. That is an encouragement to you. But know that if you fail, Jesus doesn't love you any more or any less. And the Father doesn't look upon you any worse, depending on whether you do or don't obey him well. He's not confused about who he bought when he was on the cross. He knows exactly what he was getting the whole time. And he's not displeased with you because he's not displeased with his son. He takes great pleasure in Jesus and his sacrifice. And that is the basis on which we have pleasure in the Father, not our own works. And yet we, like Paul, long for these works in this body to be broken and to be shed so that we can be glorified and be fully obedient to him. But in the meantime, we trust that it is his plan for us to exist as we are and to endure so that one day we can be resurrected. And in the meantime, we run after the kingdom and we preach the gospel and we tell everyone we can learn and we preach to our own souls that our works 
don't save us. That theology does not save us. But only Jesus Christ can save us. And he's the only one that ever will save, and he's the only one that ever can save. And that is why there's such an urgency for us to proclaim the good news. Because unless Jesus is declared as Lord and served, he cannot save you. He's the only way to salvation. He's the only means by which we are saved. And so we go into all the world and we preach that good news to our coworkers, to our neighbors, to our relatives, and again, primarily to our own soul, because we need to hear that gospel every single morning. Our hearts are prone to wander. They are prone to forget. They are prone to lean on old habits that we have taught ourselves. And so we must always remind ourselves of this truth. And if you are not a believer and these things resonate with your soul, I want you to ponder them. I want you to actually consider these things not as dead, dry religious works or considering them and as these people do, sending a report out to all the surrounding region and never actually asking the question about their own soul, have we submitted to God in a more deep way? Because they're amazed by what he does, but they don't actually think it applies to them. And so don't be guilty of the same thing in church where you are amazed at the exposition of Scripture and you're amazed at what Scripture teaches, but it never actually gets to convicting your own heart and your own soul about the truth of the words that it contains. Because it's not just a theological book. It's a book that has power to change lives and hearts. And that is what the gospel is about, and that is what the Scriptures are about. And so would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, Lord, we... we thank you for the words that you have given us. Lord, we thank you for the truth that your word contains, the fact that your book is a book that brings life into our hearts. It gives sight to the blind. It brings joy to the lips of the weary. It brings rest to those who need rest. You are the one who offers a burden that is so light and so easy because you carry it for us, Lord. And we thank you for your rest. We thank you for your power, Lord. We thank you that you are a refuge for your people. Oh Lord, I pray that our mouths would be opened and loosed in worship, that we could rightly praise you for your kingship, that we could rightly serve you, Lord, and serve you with hearts of obedience. Oh Lord, as I reflect on my life and my week, I know how disobedient I am with my heart, how obedient I can be with my actions and yet rebellious with my heart. Lord, I pray that you would convict me of that. Convict me and move me in such a way in which I can praise you rightly and obey you and serve you willingly and with delight, Lord. That your spirit and your spirit would change my heart. And Lord, that it would change each and every one of our hearts to more greatly delight in your truth and your word. Because Lord, that is what we were designed for in this earth. To glorify you and to enjoy you forever. And Lord, that is our prayer and that is our request, Lord, that you would move and convict us of our rebellion and bring us into submission. To your name be the glory. Amen.